Hello, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? It's good. Um, I don't know if I told you, I can't remember the last time we we did this, but I finally finished all my applications. Yeah, you did. I don't think you told me on here, but we did talk about it. That's great. And now you have to, now it's just a waiting game. Yeah, a long waiting game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how is open enrollment going? <laughs> Good. I feel like my um, head is just like swirling. I think I'm like mentally exhausted. The first week is usually always like really busy just because it's like the first week and then the last two weeks because everybody's like, Amanda, oh my gosh, I need help <laughs> the first week. And then also the last week, it's the procrastinators that are like, oh my gosh, I need help. I didn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's so open it's like, enrollment. <laughs> right. That's me. <laughs> it's always the really like ambitious people that are the first week. They're like, oh my gosh, I need to get this figured out right now. And then it's the like, the lollygaggers at the end (laughs) (laughs) but it's good i'm not complaining i've been like obsessing over the midterms you know i'm not super worried about california california basically always goes the one way but i am worried about pennsylvania so i've been stressing have you voted are you planning on voting uh i have not voted but i will i would like to when is i don't even know when it is though to be honest with you i don't know either uh i have to look it up when yeah you can look it up but you should vote some guy, <laughs> yes some guy approached me i was letting bentley out and he tried to come up to talk to me about stuff and it bentley went nuts i'm like oh, <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> like thank you for trying but uh you can't get close to me <laughs> bentley is a trump supporter <laughs> yeah <laughs> hilarious <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't really have much much more to discuss. I'm a little. Uh, I went out last night, and so I'm a little fuzzy. Um, <laughs> my brain <laughs> is like. I wouldn't say I'm hungover, but I'm definitely like a little like. You know, mom always calls it fuzzy, and I think that's what I am. Yeah. No, I know the feeling. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I got up at like five thirty a.m. this morning. Oh my gosh! That's so early. Yeah, I'm really, I'm actually kind of excited for turning the clock back, which I think is tomorrow, because it it takes so long to get bright here. It's 8 a.m. and like, it's finally starting to get bright. Oh my goodness. Why don't we just get into it? Um, Yes. We're going to be talking about uh, David Hume, sometimes, or like originally spelled like David Home. And I guess, you know, at one point he went to England and people were pronouncing his last name home and he was like, no, it's Hume. So he changed the spelling. Anyway, he was born in 1711 in Edinburgh, Scotland, and he died in 1776 when he was 65 years old, also in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was a really important figure in the Scottish Enlightenment. I don't actually know a ton about the Scottish Enlightenment, but uh, basically there was sort of an intellectual revolution in the English-speaking world that mostly happened in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, It became sort of known as the Athens of the English-speaking world. And I don't know exactly the extent of their friendship, but I know he at least had somewhat of a cordial relationship and like a correspondence with Adam Smith, who you might know. He wrote The Wealth of Nations, um, kind of like the first theorist of capitalism. Sometimes it said he invented capitalism, but he didn't really do that. He just is sort of the first to do like... I don't know. You might say he's like the founder of economics as like a field, actually. Um, Yeah. So he's friends with him. Um, And I guess the thing to note about Hume is he really wanted to be an influencer. Like he really wanted nothing more than to achieve literary fame. 
He was uh, born in the wrong era. He should have been born <laughs> in the era of social media. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like literary fame, as he called it, really was like his highest aspiration. Yeah. When he was in his early 20s, uh, he published a book called The Treatise of Human Nature. Today, this work is kind of seen as his most important work. It's definitely the most philosophically interesting work. It's kind of a radical, unabashed philosophical project. But as Hume writes, it immediately, he says, it, it felt dead born upon the press. Nobody read it, which was a huge blow to him. Oh, no. The in the like preface, he actually says, you know, like, here's my book, here are all my thoughts, you're gonna love it. And depending on what people have to say about it, you know, I will change up the second half of it, which I'll publish later. And nobody had anything to say about it. So, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for this man. (laughs) Don't feel bad, get better. Yeah, yeah. So, he eventually worked on writing some essays and like historical works. I guess at one point he even wrote a huge history of England, which was sort of the standard textbook for a while. And these, you know, became pretty famous and he he was really happy. And so that's why he kept writing these these essays. And he was even able to become, as he says, like somewhat wealthy. But I mean, like nothing major here, but he was able to make like a small fortune for himself. Just some other little funny Hume facts he was known for being like very overweight for the time. That's just sort of like a, a thing that happened. And this sort of happens because at one point in his early 20s, he has what he describes as something like a nervous breakdown. And the prescription at the time was um, wine because he had uh, what they called the disease of the learned, which is like scurvy, so vitamin C deficiency. And... Um, <laughs> They gave him wine, so he drank a port of wine every day. I don't know how much wine that is. What? Uh, that is so funny. I'm gonna go to the doctor and be like, "Hello, <laughs> please write I me think a I have this for wine. disease of the learned." <laughs> uh, and he, you know, started getting really into just like eating, like really a lot of like cheese and bread, and like you know, I don't know. Anyway, he became known for being pretty overweight. Um, and that sort of added to his fame even. But today we'll be going over a book called An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding. It's this little book right here. It's something almost like an apology for that treatise of human nature he wrote forever ago. So after he wrote his big philosophical work and nobody read it at all, he kind of stopped writing about philosophy subjects. I mean, he continued to write about uh, like ethics, I guess, to some extent, and economy and political theory. And it's not like he stopped uh, writing, as I said, but like strictly philosophical, metaphysical, epistemological works. He really, you know, gave up on those because they weren't they weren't getting him the fame he so craved. So now that he's like somewhat more famous, he's late in his life, he wants to sort of redo his earlier project. And so it's about like honestly like 5% of the length of the initial treatise and a lot of what this book is made up of is sort of a revised version of the first section from that treatise of human nature and i would say it's a lot more cautious he's a lot older he's a lot more reserved he's not willing to just go out there it's still pretty radical though but um it's also the one that people typically read in like undergraduate courses, just because it's short and concise. And uh, 
I mean, it's still really cool. So I figured we'd go over this one. Yeah, sounds good. What's the name of it again? An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding. Here we go. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> Let's understand humanity. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, and already from the title, and I mean, I'll get into this, you can kind of tell that we're operating within Descartes' world because our big philosophical work is concerning the human being and human understanding. This is sort of the weird influence of Descartes that I was telling you about. And I think the first uh, episode we ever did, which is basically that after Descartes, the study of philosophy really becomes almost like a, at least for a while, and maybe even to this day, the study of like the possibility of philosophy by way of an investigation of the power of human knowledge. And that's really Descartes' move. And that's Descartes' turn. And Hume is still operating within that framework. So I guess we'll just start with section one of the book. And this is of the uh, divisions and different types of philosophy. So Hume distinguishes between two kinds of philosophy of human nature. One of them considers the human being insofar as they're like an active, practical being. And the other one considers the human being insofar as they're a reasonable, understanding being. And Perhaps unsurprisingly, he begins the inquiry by discussing the relative fame of each pursuit. <laughs> you know, that's that's our Hume. He's concerned about how famous each of these different types of philosophy can make you. He, can, <laughs> he contends that the practical kind of philosophers are often more famous than the more speculative kinds. He notes that the speculative kind of philosophers are to some extent rejected or scorned by society, often regarded as useless or tasteless. What is kind of funny is he gives an example of some practical philosophers who are super famous and some examples of some philosophers who are speculative and therefore probably will be forgotten by history. He's totally wrong. I've never heard of the practical ones he mentions, but he mentions people like freaking like Descartes and like Malebranche for the for the speculative ones. Anyway, he's wrong as it turns out, but, you know, hard to. I mean, it makes sense because people are genuinely like are generally drawn to the the wild, like the um, outliers, like the people who are out there, because whether you agree with him or you don't, you have an opinion. The practical ones, you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And you move on with your day. The yeah. ones that are, you know, I can't think of the word I'm trying to use, but the ones that are, you know, more out there. Right. Everybody's like, hello, what are you saying? Or like, yes, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is right. <laughs> right. And I also think that to some extent, these speculative subjects have more like longevity because who really wants to know what, I don't know, like a 18th century British man thinks, you know, you should live your life like, like nobody really wants his, I mean, I don't want to say nobody wants his moral advice because uh, I don't want to say that ethics is just comes down to like moral advice. But I do think that to some extent, a lot of these more famous, like practical philosophers of the day are really sort of famous of the, their day. Like their their advice stops kind of being relevant <laughs> after right. a while. Um, so Hume writes, and I'm actually going to quote Hume more than uh, I will other people because Hume is the one guy who writes in English. So I think like getting some of his language is cool. Of course, there have been other thinkers who write in English, <laughs> but as far as like the classic big icons of philosophy go, he's the only one who writes in English. So I really like reading him because I don't have to worry about like, well, 
what do they mean by that word is like what's what's the original word actually you know like what why did the translator choose this word but anyway well you're really into like linguistics and stuff too so i feel like that's even extra for you <laughs> yeah exactly it, yeah um and yeah one of my favorite people heidegger writes in all these i mean uh i should note that heidegger was a nazi so we cancel him for that um but yes, yes. part of <laughs> Part of like the weird, you know, sketch uh, approach of Heidegger is he likes to use all these like old fashioned like German idioms that don't really like make any sense and like old German language because he doesn't want to use any language like derived from Latin. There are philosophical reasons for that, but also like he's a Nazi. So, I mean, it's hard to like take seriously the philosophical justifications he has for doing that. But Anyway, reading translations of him is kind of problematic and really difficult because there aren't really direct crossovers with a lot of the words he's using. But anyway, Hume writes, The mere philosopher is a character which is commonly but little acceptable in the world, as being supposed to contribute nothing either to the advantage or pleasure of society. While he lives remote from communication with mankind and is wrapped up in principles and notions equally remote from their comprehension. So... I think this is like a description of the philosopher that we can, we can all relate to, you know, there's somebody who doesn't really contribute anything to society, like lives remote and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that this is sort of the vision he has of like the, the skeptical philosopher. And I think that this is sort of why he thinks that the speculative kind of philosophers are rejected. They're scorned as being, you know, useless or like tasteless. And Hume, who's so sensitive to the verdicts and judgments of society, tries to determine what can be said on behalf of the speculative philosophers. So he's going to try to like muster up some kind of apology for them. On the one hand, Hume thinks that there's certainly some virtue in exactitude. And that the more practical philosophy can more easily attain precision if it has a more exact understanding of its object. So he kind of compares the situation to a painter who can paint figures better, the better they understand anatomy. So he writes, accuracy is in every case advantageous to beauty and just reasoning to delicate sentiment. In vain would we exalt the one by depreciating the other. So... I think the example he uses with anatomy here is like, you know, classically say da Vinci was always uh, performing autopsies on bodies and trying to understand human anatomy so that he could better understand like the muscular structure of the human body in order to better paint it. And, and, I, and I think this is sort of what he means by the painter who can paint figures the better they understand anatomy. And I think he sees practical, moral, ethical philosophy as the painting and the speculative philosophy as the anatomy. So maybe it's not necessarily the most interesting to the most people, but if you want to have, if you want to give good advice, if you want to give good practical rules for life, and if you want to know how to live the good life, you need to understand the human being as best you can. Yeah, that makes sense. How can you give advice or understand life without understanding people in general? Yeah. Right. Um, so that's his first attempt at an apology. And he also wants to say, and, and, you know, I love him for this. He wants to say that we shouldn't despise speculative philosophy as long as it's understood as just the exercise of innocent curiosity, just because it doesn't contribute much to the advantage of society. 
basically he wants to say that it doesn't cause much harm either. And if some people find joy by doing speculative philosophy, we shouldn't persecute them so long as they're not actively harming people. He writes, the sweetest and most inoffensive path of life leads through the avenues of science and learning. You know, I find this I find this touching. Yeah, Hume. <laughs> Philosophers aren't hurting anyone. Yes, Hume. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, okay, to be fair to the people who, I mean, I think actually these days in today's political climate, the humanities really are under attack. I really do think, you know, I think a good example would be something like uh, gender studies is often mentioned by the right as like this totally pointless endeavor that, you know, yada, 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 basically, oh, it's like a waste of money is like often the critique that they bring up. And I mean, to be fair, maybe if you think that philosophy is totally pointless and it is a waste of money, I mean, I personally would disagree. And I think there's like a a very long history that gives me confidence that I'm right to disagree with the fact that, you know, philosophy is pointless or whatever. But um, anyway, yeah. And I mean, of course, philosophers are the sort of people to say that, well, really, like philosophy is the most important thing, (laughs) like not the other way around. But um, anyway, yeah, I mean, Hume here is kind of just saying like, you know, so what? Like, <laughs> it's it's important. Let them exercise their curiosity. You're certainly not going to do it. Um, and Hume also wants to say that, if anything, we might approve of speculative philosophy as a way of clarifying and elucidating certain obscurities. Um, but, and I mean, and this is where Hume starts to shine through. The difficulties of speculative philosophy are not just objected to because they're fatiguing, but also because some assert that they're sources of uncertainty and error. So maybe we should approve of speculative philosophy, he's saying, if it is a means of clarifying and elucidating difficulties and obscurities. But Hume also wants to say that those very obscurities and difficulties are like perhaps originated in the philosophy. So maybe philosophy, speculative philosophy, isn't a way of making things clear, but a way of making things more confusing. <laughs> um And he writes, here indeed lies the justice and most plausible objection against metaphysics, that they are not properly a science, but arise either from the fruitless efforts of human vanity, which would penetrate into subjects utterly inaccessible to the understanding, or from the craft of popular superstitions, which, being unable to defend themselves on fair ground, raise these entangling brambles to cover and protect their weakness. So this is really an important sentence, long as it may be, and so I want to investigate it a little further. So Hume is raising two concerns about the legitimacy of metaphysics. This marks, for the first time, I think, uh, a real possi- a real concern about the possibility of metaphysics or pure speculative philosophy as such. With Descartes, we saw the beginning of this concern. And I mean, after all, Descartes was worried about the stability of the ground of metaphysics, but he never seriously suspected that the whole enterprise was like misguided or that it needed entirely like, you know, dispensing with basically like Descartes always had faith that he would be able to find a new ground for metaphysics secure the whole thing pure philosophy was going to be fine it's just needed a little bit of a change of heart whereas Hume is sort of seriously doubting the possibility of metaphysics as such so the first of Hume's concerns is going to prove enormously influential he worries that metaphysics or speculative philosophy is perhaps nothing but the manifestation of a fruitless vanity In particular, he worries that we cannot penetrate into the subject at all. And I think this is fascinating. And I just want to note here that Hume is not simply saying that metaphysics is somehow like just too difficult for us 
or like maybe that like, oh, we're just like always going to be unclear about it, but rather that the subject of metaphysics itself is like utter utterly inaccessible to us because of the way that we think. In other words, Hume worries that we must always end up in error when we do metaphysics because we end up contemplating things we can't really get a firm grasp on, which is kind of to say that we end up thinking about nothing substantial at all. And Hume's second concern, which is maybe less important, but just as understandable, is that metaphysics arises from mere popular superstition. That is not actually this pure speculative science at all, but rather merely the reflection of popular prejudices, customs, and beliefs. And that its difficulty and obscurity can be understood as a means of protecting popular belief from scrutiny and critique. And I think that this sentiment is echoed in many contemporary critiques of philosophy, where speculative metaphysics tries to present itself as something that is transcendent of time and historical circumstance and as always true, no matter you know who's reading it. Um, but perhaps Hume is pointing out here, or at least Hume is pointing out that some people are worried about the fact that maybe metaphysics is just the reflection of like the contemporary human condition and the like contemporary human beliefs and that it's not difficult and obscure because the subject matter is so difficult and obscure but rather that the difficulty and obscurity are just there to make it so that popular belief is somehow harder to criticize a good example of uh, this sort of sentiment in another philosopher and i always mention him just because he's full of little one-liners nietzsche uh, says that Kant's joke is that uh, he describes in a way that the average person cannot understand exactly what the average person thinks. <laughs> um, anyway, the average like, person cannot understand what the average person thinks. Well, that that's what philosophy. That's what Kant's philosophy does. That Kant defends uh, the average person or like tries to espouse like what everybody thinks in a way that nobody can understand. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And uh, Hume really doesn't spend too much time on this particular concern, which is that, you know, really metaphysics is just the expression of popular prejudice. Um, I do think it's, it's maybe a serious concern, uh, but it's just not the one that he, he addresses. So Hume is going to focus, I think, on what he sees as the stronger and more important uh, concern, which is the first one, um, which, you know, is to say that Hume worries about whether or not we have the power to study the things we try to study when we're doing metaphysics at all. So he's going to try to investigate our way of knowing things, and he's going to try to demonstrate that our faculty of knowledge actually isn't up to the demands of metaphysics. In this way, and I mean, here again, you can see Descartes' influence, um, even in a philosopher quite opposed to him, like Hume, that Hume attempts to evaluate the possibility of pure philosophy by analyzing our capacity to know. So he also points out that an investigation into the nature of the mind has other advantages. When it comes to the objects of the senses, Hume says that there really isn't much merit in simply distinguishing them. Like, if someone were to come up to you and just start correctly distinguishing between like the things in your room, that would be weird. Like if they're just like, well, that's a window, that's a chair. That's a <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to be like, wow, you're brilliant. Like unless like a baby or something, you know, like. <laughs> that's really funny. I'm going to do that next time I go over to somebody's house. Just be like, oh, hey. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. That's you a see window. how powerful the, the mind is? <laughs> Look at all these things I can distinguish between. <laughs> so, yeah, but though, uh, Hume wants to point out that the mind, which, you know, even though it's the most like immediate thing to us, Hume says, and like, you know, it's the thing we're the most intimately familiar with in some way. It's also somehow the most obscure and like the least sus susceptible to these sort of strict categorizations. So if someone were to like really specifically list out all the distinct faculties of the mind and, you know, do so correctly, then this would be an achievement, I think. You know, like if you were to just be like, here's all the different powers that the mind has, here's exactly their limitations. And if you were to just able to sort of correctly identify and categorize these powers in the way that you would with like the things in your room, Hume thinks that that would be an achievement. Um, and already, actually, I just want to take a second to point out that we can get a glimpse at the sort of general approach that Hume takes. So according to Hume, the objects of the senses are clearly and distinctly understood. The limits of each of those objects of the senses are clear to us. And the difference between one object and another is painfully obvious and really doesn't require any speculation. Like the difference between, uh, you know, the screen on your computer and its keyboard is not the sort of thing you have to like conclude. Like you see it as different immediately. It presents itself. The, the boundaries are clear in advance from the start. But the mind itself, which I think, say someone like Descartes, and I think lots of people will think is the thing we understand the best. Like, oh, you know, I understand myself better than I understand anything else is, I think, a sentiment that some people will say. Uh, Hume wants to say that that is a lot less clear and that our understanding of its various components and faculties is murky and confused. So Hume is going to begin section two, and he's going to try to investigate the nature of human understanding so that he can see if we're really up to the task, if our understanding is really capable of doing metaphysics. So Hume's investigation into the nature of the human way of understanding things begins with a simple observation. Everyone will admit, Hume contends, that there is a notable difference between the perception of the mind when someone feels pain from, say, excessive heat, and when someone afterwards recollects or imagines that pain. In other words, our memories of pain, even if they are very powerful, are different from the initial experiences of pain we're remembering. And I think that maybe this point is less clear in the case of certain sorts of emotional pains. So, for example, if I remember feeling sad, I might thereby actually begin feeling sad again. Right. Because, well, you can recreate like you can recreate feelings, I feel like, you know, like, yeah, if you're sad or you think about something that was awful or terrible or traumatic, you can kind of go back there more so than, say, if you broke your ankle and you experience physical pain like you can't really just I mean I guess you could just break your ankle again but like you, right. you know you can't really just go break your ankle <laughs> yeah well and I think to Hume's credit maybe we can say that like well if you're if you experience something really sad like say a breakup and now you're thinking about the breakup again and you're starting to feel sad again maybe that that feeling sad again is actually like when if you were to break your ankle again like maybe you are not necessarily like reliving the pain but experiencing anew the pain of remembering that pain, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah. Um, so maybe it is still different. But also, I mean, fortunately, Hume doesn't really, we don't really have to worry about that because he sticks with the examples of like, well, the pain from excessive heat or like the pleasure of moderate warmth or sort of like what you were talking about, like breaking your ankle, like something like that. Like he sticks with those sorts of physical sorts of pleasures and pains, at least for now. Um, 
And you're right. Like, unless you were to break your ankle again, you're not really going to relive that memory of pain. But no, you still you. do have a memory of the pain in a way. It's actually funny that you're bringing this up because lately I've been thinking about pain in general because, you know, people sometimes ask you like, oh, do you have high pain tolerance or I was just, I was, this is so silly, but like I was getting a pedicure yesterday and the lady was like, you know, they, I don't know if you've ever got, have you ever gotten a pedicure? I wish. No, my feet you are too ugly. I'm too worried. I don't want them to have to look at them. <laughs> oh, stop. I'm a hundred percent certain they've seen worse. A hundred percent certain. <laughs> but anyway, so they take the little, like, um, you've seen mom doing nails like that little, like, like little stick thing. And they like go in between, like in your toes to like mm. get the stuff out. It's gross. <laughs> so gross. But she was asking me, she's like, does this hurt? And I'm like, well, I mean, it doesn't feel great, but I don't know that it's like actually like painful. And I've just been th thinking about this concept of pain lately a lot, especially since I've been doing so much running. Um, I ran 11 miles yesterday and I was in pain. Like I was, I went to get off the treadmill and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> like, you know, like my knees were hurting but it doesn't stop me from doing it. It's like, I go do this still next week. I'm going to go run 11 miles again or 12 miles knowing that I'm going to be experiencing this pain, but it's, it's just weird. It's like such a, it's such a weird concept pain, especially when you do it knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> oh like, yeah. No, totally. Know, I, I think I have, um, I'm lucky just speaking of like pain tolerance. I have a way of like compartmentalizing like uh like a more like searing or like intense pain so like if i get like if i like stub my toe or something like at first i'm overwhelmed but i really do have this way of being like okay that's pain you know i'm just feeling this pain it's you name it the world yeah. but yeah i name it i compartmentalize it i categorize it like i i see it as something like distinct from me in a way but i have a much harder time doing that with like chronic pain like if my neck yeah. is hurting all day or something then i just sort of get you know sort of overwhelmed by it that makes but, sense. I actually really like that. That is, it's true. And obviously it's much harder. And that's probably why I heard somebody talking about on another podcast that um, if somebody invented like a pill for when you go through a breakup or like a heartbreak, um, because they do like heartbreak is literally like a thing. Like it is like you can have an actual broken heart. But anyway, if they invented like a pill just to make you feel better, like that person would be a billionaire because that's the thing. It's chronic. It doesn't go away. Like you might have moments of and this goes for anything that's like truly like sad and you know you know you go through these moments it's like one day one minute you're like oh I'm feeling great this is going to be a great day I'm over this I'm better and then in the back of your mind though it's like oh I know the sadness is going to come back it's like terrible it's awful yeah I think you like sort of just have to at least from my experiences you just have to like wait and it sucks like you sort of wait right. for it to become faint and I mean I think there is like wisdom that you know, it'll always like creep up every now and then. But I do think it does so much less frequently as time goes on. And then when it does, you're also more familiar with it and that sort of thing. But yeah, no, it, it does suck that you kind of just have to wait, which yeah. is another and interesting thing about pain. Yeah. Like, even if you stub your toe, you also kind of just have to wait. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh you're like, God, oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> time heals all wounds. And you know, what? you said something else interesting um, that I think that's why like they always say like your first love or your first heartbreak is the hardest because you just don't know that you're going to feel better. Like when you experience a pain for the first time, whether it's on a 
say emotional or physical. It's like, you just don't know. You don't have the experience or the exposure to know when it's going to feel better. Whereas like now I've been through this a couple of times. It happens to me again. I'm just like, well, (laughs) this really freaking sucks, but like, it's going to get better. So it's like, you have that to count on. But the first time, if you break your ankle for the first time, you're like, man, like, is this ever going to get better? Or if you go through heartbreak for the first time, you're like, I'm never going to survive. You know, like I'm never going to be loved again. Well, and I think there's a lot to like the ritual we have of tending to like our more physical pains. Like, I think there's something where if I say get a scratch or break my ankle, I'm going to use the example of getting like a pretty like painful scratch or something. Like I have this ritual of like, well, I'm going to wash my wound. I'm going to put Neosporin on it. I'm going to put a bandaid on it. I'm going to tend to it. I'm going to observe it getting better. I'm going to look at my flesh, like see it start to heal, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas with heartbreak, like I feel much more at a loss of like how to manage it or like how to confront it. Like at least I can convince myself with like a broken ankle or something like I'm doing all the things I need to do to get this better. Like I'm being an active participant in my healing here. Yes. Whereas like with heartbreak, it's much less clear how to go about doing that. (laughs) It is. But you know what? I think a good thing is that another good thing about like I try to look at the positives because sometimes I feel like the world is really going to shit. But I try to look at the positives (laughs) like having a child that's growing up in this world, you know. Uh, There's a lot of downsides to it, a ton of downsides to it. But I do think one of the other things that's, you know, good about it is that people are normalizing it more. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about emotions. We're talking about heartbreak. And, you know, people do better in a sense of community. And, like, just feeling like you're not alone can really do wonders. That's why social media is so huge. That's why, like, these people on TikTok or Instagram or whatever that go – like create a whole account and have end up having hundreds of thousands of followers when they're documenting these kinds of things, because people like to get on there and think, Oh man, at least I'm not alone. You know, like it, and there's people have tips and tricks and, but ultimately I just think it's like, you know, I'm not the only one who's hurting right now. And that, you know, yeah. makes people feel better. I read, um, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit that I was on Reddit, but I, I read a, <laughs> a Reddit question that was like, you know, why are, why do people take more pills these days? Why does everyone seem to have a mental illness these days and that sort of thing? And someone responded with like, well, the difference between, you know, today and 20 years ago is that now, like, if we have a mental illness, you know, we take an appropriate medicine. We don't just like drink alcohol or like abuse people or, you know, like, right. Now, now people have always had mental illnesses. It's just that now they're being talked about and treated. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm just going to read a little Hume passage again, uh, and then we'll talk about that. So he writes these faculties and he's talking about uh, the faculties of the mind here, like imagination and memory. Um, He says these faculties may mimic or copy the perceptions of the senses, but they can never entirely reach the force and vivacity of the original sentiment. All the colors of poetry, however splendid, can never paint natural objects in such a manner as to make the description be taken for a real landscape. <laughs> the Scottish did not, like, spelling was not standardized, so every once in a while Hume comes out with something like landscape <laughs> instead of <laughs> landscape. <laughs> um, the most, and he says, uh, and this is like a, a nice little one-liner, the most lively thought is still inferior to the dullest sensation. So first of all, compare Hume to Descartes here. Like I was, wait, I was just going to say that. So I was literally just going to say, first of all, is this like something common among philosophers that like they talk about the senses a lot? Because I feel like this is obviously not the first time we're talking about the senses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So 
this era of philosophy that really starts with Descartes is really concerned with the senses. And because Descartes was concerned about the senses, I think there's like a time gotcha. period because Hume comes about like 150 years or so after Descartes. And so in this era, people are still worried about the senses as a way of sort of uh, like understanding knowledge. Um do you think that has anything to do with the fact that, like, I'd be curious, are we ever going to talk about, like, modern day philosophers? Because I'd be curious if they talk about it as much or if it's more prevalent all of those many years ago. I Honestly, I can't believe that, like, 1711 is a real thing. Like, that feels crazy to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, because they had less to go on. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have, I mean, I, I don't even know. Like, they probably wrote by candlelight. I don't even know. It's crazy. <laughs> but, like, I'm just, like, they had less to kind of go off of like now there's just so much to like think about and before you literally just had to rely on your senses i mean it makes sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and i think contemporary philosophers some of them are more worried about the senses i think a lot of them are more worried about what they'll call like empirical information empirical in a way just means like from the senses so they still are concerned about it but they have a different way of sort of speaking about it and i and i think for these people, it's also interesting to note that this is sort of the time when there's a revolution in science of sense organs. Like Descartes, for instance, was obsessed with the anatomy of the eye and has all these really intricate, detailed uh, descriptions of the eye. And this is around the first time that people are discovering nerves and like, you know, realizing that like, oh, like if I put my needle right next to this nerve, my patient doesn't feel anything. But once I hit this nerve, they feel it super acutely. Like people are starting to map out the like system of nerves and people are people like there's a scientific revolution of anatomy happening now where people are trying to document and organize and analyze and honestly like mechanize the workings of the body. And so I think that this is concomitant to this interest in sensation is this new interest in like sense organs um but interesting yeah and so with this with this take that hume has what i really want to take note of is the way in which hume preliminarily describes the inferiority of thought to sensation and this yeah, is kinda... it was that last statement that you said it was and i was trying to remember it but it, what did he say that the dullest Most lively thought is still inferior to the dullest sensation so he's basically saying that even like your most vivid and most imaginary and lively dream or thought is still not as prevalent as even your most boring action sitting on the couch and watching TV. <laughs> or at least like what you sense when you're doing that. Yeah, right. Okay. Like, um, and I, I love that it took you a second to try to think of the word there for the difference between them. Yeah. But that's exactly what my next point is about the way in which Hume says it's inferior. Like, what is it? Like, is it the prevalence? Is it like the right. seriousness? Like what? Cause I think there's something to like, we can kind of intuitively understand what he's saying that like, yeah, there's is something about like the dream, like even the most realistic dream is somehow less something than. Right. Like, but what is it? Yeah. Sensation. So Hume, and this is what I love about my man Hume, he says <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's uh, inferior in terms of what he says, force or vivacity, or sometimes he'll say vividness. Um, and this is a distinctly Hume take, and it's one which really nobody else has had. 
And I think it's kind of amazing. So I kind of just want to go into this a little bit. So for most philosophers, the difference between a thought and a sensation comes down to something like, oh, like the difference between a human and an animal power. So like the ancients had a way of sort of thinking about it, like, well, animals see and smell like they have the senses, but they don't think. So thinking is like, you know, the distinctly human faculty, like it's a human power. Or some people will say that the difference between uh, thinking and sensation comes down to like a difference between like a rationality and a corporeality. So they'll sort of look at like the content of what's involved in each one or like the substance of each one, like Descartes did. Some will say that it's the difference between being and becoming. And this is also sort of an ancient way of doing it. But they'll say like, well, the things of thought are unchanging. They exist as such. And the things of the senses are always changing. Like they're, you know, first it's this, then it's that. It's, you know, going constantly between being and non-being. Some people will say it's like the difference between like what's logical and what isn't logical. And in other words, like, I just want to say, like, most philosophers want to say that our powers of thinking and sensing are somehow like these fundamentally different powers. And in particular, most philosophers will say that thinking is the superior power. But Hume is saying that the only difference between them is their vivacity, or like how lively or vivid they are. So thoughts are just like these less vivid, less forceful, forceful, less lively shadows of our sensations. And I think that this like really is marvelous I, because I, I, it doesn't necessarily distinguish in a fundamental way between our capacities to think and sense. And that's just crazy to me. In other words, it like doesn't make one of these capacities out to be somehow like totally different and like mysterious and murky. And I also think there's something legitimate to what Hume says here. In some way, when I imagine a car, say, or like, yeah, like, let's say I imagine a car like I do see a car in some sense, but it's like faint or like distinct. So like, it's almost like the difference between like a high res and like a low res picture or something is what Hume is saying. Like it's a, it's um, a very, you can't, yeah, you can't possibly. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You can't just like with the one line that he said about the picture, like even the most talented artist can't make a photo real or, you know, a painting real, like you can't make it whatever dimensional like you can't you just can't make it real right and like a poet you know, the, the the most powerful descriptive language in the world can give you an image but that image Hume wants to say is just necessarily less vivid and intense even than one like even the dullest thing you've ever seen yeah. um and I think like ultimately, I think he might be right about this. And it's like kind of rare that I encounter a philosopher. Where I'm like, yeah, no, there's something really maybe not rare that I encounter like, oh, like there's something really deep here, but like rather like, wow. And you also might be kind of right about that. Um, right, right. Like you can usually relate to it or like at least make sense of it, but it doesn't you don't necessarily agree. But yeah, I mean. It's true. I mean, I often think about that, too, because I, you know, like I think, you know, this I don't have a very vivid imagination. <laughs> like, I'm just not somebody who like, I'm very like realistic. And so for me, especially, I'm sitting here like, yeah, I have a hard time imagining most of anything unless I've seen it before. And then I can kind of recount it. But even that is just not the same, like not even close, not even close to the same. Right. And like, I think you see that with like sketch artists or something or like, like a police sketch, you know, like if I were to just tell you, like describe the face you saw, it's like really hard to do that, you know, <laughs> like I think about that all the time. Wait, I literally sometimes. So yesterday I was in the mall 
And this guy was creeping me out and he kept, he was like following me. And just, especially as a woman in today's climate, I didn't have Amelia with me. Thank goodness. But when I have her with me, I'm extra, like extra diligent. Like I'm always paying attention. I'm always just like, like we've talked about before, kind of like trusting my intuition and like my gut feeling. And, um, this guy was just like weird. He followed me into the women's side of express. He didn't, he wasn't with a woman and the men's side was right there. He followed me in super fast. Like he was walking super fast behind me and then turned around and like left immediately when I looked at him. Cause I'd make eye contact with these people. Cause I'm like, I want you to know that I see you. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're planning, but I want you to know that I see you. I doubt he was planning anything. We're in a very crowded mall, but my point is I literally thought to myself, okay, remember his face in case I ever need to like make a <laughs> sketch. But like, I don't know that I would be able to do that anyway, first of all. And second of all, the crazy thing is, is that these people are out here doing these sketches or whatever. And then like this person could look like somebody who's completely innocent because like their idea of what they saw is totally wrong. Right. And that even sometimes comes down to like the fallibility of when people are like trying to identify, like I'm trying to think of like the lineup of suspects and like you have the the victim come and like try to pick out which of these people is the one. Right. And, like, it can be hard or like you can misremember and like, you might have like a faint or a general or like a murky idea of the person. Right. You might remember certain details like, oh, no, they were definitely tall and they had a mustache, you know, right. like, but even sometimes those are wrong, which is crazy. Right. But yeah, I mean, I I really like to make portraits, as you know, or draw portraits. So I think I don't know if it's like which is the chicken and which is the egg here, but I think I'm also really good at. Uh, visualizing like facial features and that sort of thing and just sort of like looking at them as they really are because maybe I'm good at drawing portraits because I like to do that or maybe it's the other way around but right yeah I was <laughs> anyway. gonna say it could be either way what how would we know <laughs> right yeah um ask and, one of your philosophers they'll probably have an idea <laughs> for you <laughs> so yeah and I mean I want to sort of since this makes so much intuitive sense I want to ask the question, why haven't other philosophers come to the same conclusion? And there's a good answer, I think. And there's more than one good answer. And like, we'll see that this position of Hume's, which seems to make a lot of sense, also requires him to make some really extreme and radical takes later on. Um, and he does make them. He's, he, doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't back away like from these extreme radical takes. He commits to the bit. Um, so let's consider like the question, like an ancient important question, are our thoughts universal? And if so, how? And so I'll give like some examples of what I mean. So like, if I were to say something like monkeys are silly animals, how are we to understand the way in which I'm thinking about monkeys? For surely, some will say, I'm not thinking about any particular monkey. I'm thinking about monkeys in general. But we never see or sense anything in general. So like this monkey I'm talking about when I say monkeys are silly animals or like, you know, like the monkey is a primate, like in, uh, you know, a documentary or something like what I'm talking about there is not any particular animal. It's not anything we could see. It's not any individual at all. And in this way, there seems to be something really fundamentally different about thought and sensation. Like, how can we say that thought is just a fainter, lesser version of sensation when it seems capable of representing things universally or like things in general, while sensation is utterly incapable of doing that? And I mean, Hume is going to be consistent here and he's going to be radical. Um, and I'm going ahead of myself here, but I just want to give like a preview of like sort of what's at stake here. He really will say like, no, 
we do just think about one monkey when we say monkeys are silly animals. And we know by custom and by habit that the monkey we're thinking about is a good substitute for any of the other monkeys. So Hume is going to say that universality isn't a property of thought, but a certain sort of custom or like use of language. Um, and I think this is sort of one of the biggest reasons why people have thought there is something so fundamentally different about thinking and about uh, sensation that like maybe there's not something super different about imagination and sensation, but at least like thinking or when we make judgments about things in general, or even if we say like three plus five is eight. Like when I'm talking about those numbers, I'm not talking about anything that like I've seen. I'm not talking about like three apples and five apples. I'm just talking about three and five. So how can we say that thought is just, you know, a matter or like is like lesser than sensation and that and in particular that the only difference between them is their vividness. So I'm going to keep going. And in typical philosopher fashion, Hume makes a general distinction between two types of perceptions of the mind. And he says they're distinguished only by their different degrees of vivacity or forceful vividness. On the one hand, so these are like terms that are going to come up again. So this is kind of important. On the one hand, we have ideas or thoughts, which are the less forcible, lively and vivid perceptions. And according to Hume, there isn't actually a word in English for the other sort of perception of the mind. He wants to capture all the things which the mind perceives in a vivid, lively way. He includes our perceptions when we hear, see, feel, love, hate, desire, or will. So we have both sensory perceptions and the so-called passions of the soul and the faculty of willing all in one. All of these, Hume says, are more lively than ideas. And he uses the word impression for them. But we should be careful because uh, Hume is precise here. In Hume's time, the word impression in philosophy usually meant something like the effect of an object on the mind or the sense organs. But Hume is very clear that by the word impression, he wants to refer to the perceptions themselves and wants to leave out any sort of interpretation of the cause of these impressions. He is not trying to say that first there is an object and then this object affects the mind. And then we have a vivid perception of it, which we call an impression, which I think is the standard picture of the way in which objects affect us. That, you know, there's some objects, say like a table, this table emits some light to our eyes, our eyes absorb that light, it, our brain interprets the light and ta-da, vision of table. Hume is going to say that's not Hume's picture. And a lot of philosophers, actually, a lot of the more serious philosophers don't share this picture. And there there are some like serious problems with this picture, which I think I want to get more into when I talk about Kant, because I think he has a better way of talking about that. But anyway, Hume is going to say that like we like we have these vivid impressions of objects. So no, he's not saying there's an object, the object affects the mind, and then we have a vivid perception, but rather that, first of all, we have these vivid perceptions. He therefore doesn't have to explain how the senses produce our impressions of objects, because the order of explanation is the reverse for Hume. It's not as if we have the five senses, and these grant us the power to have impressions. Rather, it is because we are always already capable of having impressions that we require something like the senses in the first place. A good way to see this difference is to take something like a like a rock. If we took an eyeball and attached it to the rock, we wouldn't say that the rock has a sense organ. <laughs> In other words, it's not because we have particular organs that we are able to have sensations, but rather we are capable of having sensation. It's because we're capable of having sensations that particular organs of ours are understood as sense organs. And I think this is like a, a kind of deep point. Um, we are open to other objects and that openness is 
that in virtue of which our eyes see things. If our eyes, if we're no longer open to things, our eyes are no longer sense organs. So anyway, I mean, it's like a, a, a kind of a, a weird point, like a weird inversion of the direction of causality or something here. And right. I'm really interested in that. Um, and in fact, in my thesis on Kant, I talk about Kant's version of this sort of inversion a lot. Um, but I just want to keep moving forward. So, cause I want to get to this crazy part, but we've gone on for a long time. So I'm going to keep going. Um, okay. Hume points out that this limitation of the power of thought might seem odd at first because it seems like our imagination runs like more freely than our senses. It seems like we can imagine anything after all, but Hume wants to point out that even our, in our wildest dreams and fancies, we must always deal with things which we've had impressions of and that the power of the mind and imagination is limited to no more than the faculties of compounding, transposing, augmenting, and diminishing. So he gives an example of a golden mountain, and I've used this example before, which is like, well, maybe you've never seen a golden mountain, but you've seen gold and you've seen mountain. Or maybe he, you could imagine an example, imagine Amelia, but 40 feet tall. You've never seen a 40 feet tall Amelia before. However, <laughs> you have like seen... Amelia, and you can imagine a 40-foot-tall version of that by augmenting that imagined image. Um, Hume will go so far as to lay out the general principle, and this is like the main take of Hume. This is what he's most known for, that all of our ideas must be understood as copies of our impressions. So the power of the mind is thereby limited by the power of sensation. And this is going to give Hume a great way to criticize and limit the possibility of metaphysics. And I want to quote him. He writes, all ideas, especially abstract ones, are naturally faint and obscure. The mind has but a slender hold of them. They are apt to be confounded with other resembling ideas annexed to it. On the contrary, all impressions, that is all sensations, either outward or inward, are strong and vivid. The limits between them are more exactly determined, nor is it easy to fall into any errors or mistake with regard to them. When we entertain, therefore, any suspicion that a philosophical term is employed without any meaning or idea, we need but inquire... From what impression is that supposed idea derived? And if it be impossible to assign any, this will serve to confirm our suspicion. In other words, if we're confronted in philosophy with some obscure or sophisticated idea that seems like it might not really have anything to do with reality, all we need to do, Hume asserts, is ask whether that idea could have come from some sort of impression. Or more precisely, could that idea be a sort of transformation of an impression? To finish off today's episode, I want to talk about human causality. According to Hume, we rely on causality whenever we endeavor to explain one thing by means of another, or whenever we give a reason for something which we might not currently know. Hume gives an example. If someone were to ask why I believe, say, my friend is in France, even though I can't see him in France right now because I don't have binoculars, I might give some reason which I could take to be the cause of his being in France, for instance, that I saw him getting on a boat to France. Or, for instance, if I were to tell you, like, well, Julian just got back from Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is true, and you were to ask me, how do I know that? I might say, like, well, he has his gi on, and he told me he was going to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, you know, that's the cause of my knowledge. Right. Here I'm supposing that, like, it's something like a necessary of effect of, like, getting on a boat, for instance, with the France example, that, uh, you know, they arrive in France, or like that you know, on the one hand, if you were to ask me, how do I know he's in France? I can say, well, I saw him get on the boat to France. I'm assuming sort of a connection between his getting on the boat and his arrival. Hume wants to say that there's nothing intrinsic to getting on a boat to France and arriving in France. 
It's merely by customarily learning that departing often leads to arriving that we suppose there's a connection between the two. And in general, he was going to go much further and say that there's nothing inherently secure about causality in general, or rather that causality itself is by no means a matter of something logical, but is entirely dependent upon constant conjunction. And so it best serves as a good and approximate way of approaching things. So he is going to say that on the one hand, cause and effect are completely distinct events, so neither can be found in the other. And whenever we're presented with a situation which seems to have a necessary effect, we have only our past experiences to rely on when we conjecture that the effect will occur. So for example, if I have a candle and a lighter, and I turn on the lighter and bring it near the candle, we suppose the wick will set fire. Why do we suppose this? He wants to say that our only means of explanation is that we've always experienced the burning of the, of the wick in a similar situation that the burning of the wick is by no means guaranteed here. It could always turn out to not burn. What would stop it from just not burning? Like, why do we suppose that anything is going to lead to anything else? Hume wants to say that this is not logical. And this is important because for people like Descartes and for Spinoza and Leibniz, this was a logical principle that the that cause and effect are necessarily connected, that the cause has a necessary effect, that meaning to say that, well, once you posit the one thing, the, the other thing must always occur. So if A causes B, then this says that, well, once you have A, you must always have B. If you had A and then B didn't occur, then we would say that A didn't cause B. But he wants to say that when we talk about causality, we are much less precise here. And really, we're often wrong. Like, I think all the time, we think one thing is going to lead to another thing and it doesn't. And we're not like, oh my God, like the entire universe is broken. We're just like, well, okay, I made a mistake. I guess, <laughs> you know, that didn't really cause that. But Hume is also making like a, a deeper point, which is just that like, we can't see, we have no impression of a necessary connection. We see one thing, we see another thing. We see maybe that whenever one thing happens, it seems like all all of our lives, whenever we see say one ball, hit another one pool ball, hit another pool ball. It makes contact, we hear the noise, whatever. All of our lives, we think, well, that's going to make the next pool ball move. Like they're going to hit each other, they're going to collide, they're going to both move as a result of that, like et cetera, et cetera. Humans just say, well, we see one thing, which is the pool ball. We see another thing, which is their connection. And we see another thing, which is their separation and like movement in different directions. And maybe all of our lives, we can map out and measure the ways in which these pool balls moves. And so like we can build even like a physics, like we can have a physics at all because we can try to say that like, well, one you know physical event is going to cause another physical event and it'll do it in this way. This is how it's always worked. And Hume wants to say that the only security we have in that is that it's always been that way thus far. That there's nothing to stop that. There's nothing to you know prevent the pool ball from just not moving or from the pool ball from doing anything else or maybe even just suddenly sprouting into a tree. Why not? It's like, what security do you have in thinking that any one thing is going to lead to any other thing ever? And not even just with things that like, it's obvious, like you might be wrong about, but things like in science as such, like, I think this is deeply problematic for science or for physics, like that you can't predict events or like not with any like actual logical certainty that the best we can do is make good guesses. And I mean, Hume wants to say our guesses are really good and that for our practical everyday circumstances, this isn't really that all that important. But for metaphysics, this is going to be really important. Um, I mean, I think this is really important. This is crazy. Like that's an <laughs> insane concept 
that the world is basically speculation. You have no idea about anything, which you know what? Honestly, lately, that's kind of been how I've been feeling anyway. <laughs> Who freaking knows? Life is wild. So you know what, Hugh? Maybe you have a point. Maybe none of it connects. None of it matters. None of it makes sense. I mean, this is what I've been saying for like the past year or so. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Hugh wants to say that like, well, it's just customary. Like, you know, this is kind of just how we go about our lives. Like we go about our lives thinking that like when we turn the wheel on our car, our car is also going to turn. We just have to take that for granted. We just have to assume that that's going to be the case because that's how it's always been before. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, but there, but he wants to say that there's nothing that secures that the next time you do it, that it'll also happen. But what do you it's mean? What custom. about all the mechanics in the car? Like, how does he not like, how does he like, but even all, the, even all the mechanics in the car, you can separate into these different events. And there's no reason that any chain in the, in the, like the mechanical chain of things that happen has to happen. So even if like when you turn your wheel, this causes, I don't know how cars work. Let's say you turn a wheel, <laughs> this causes, you know, some machinery to go on. And then that machinery, you know, pinches the brakes on your wheels. <laughs> like at each, each of those movements in the machine doesn't necessarily have to happen. Up to now, it's always happened that this regular chain has happened. But Hume wants to say that, well, we see, and this is because, like I was saying, for Hume, all of our impressions or all of our ideas are copies of our impressions. So we don't see necessary connection. Have you ever seen cause? I know. You see no. one thing and you see another thing. You see that whenever you do the one thing, the other thing always happens. And eventually, Hume wants to say, like, we get very firm on this. And it's not just like a psychological fact. It's not just a matter of like association. It is to some extent Hume, Hume, I think, is often credited with becoming like the founder of association, which I think you're familiar with, like from psychology mm -hmm. and like, you know, like Pavlov and that sort of thing. But um, it's not even just a matter of psychological association, but also that this is in a deep way, like how human society and custom and culture has to work that like this faith in that things will continue the way that they have up to now is something we must always take for granted in order for us to continue operating the way that we do in the world. And well, right. That that's, what, that's what I was thinking. It's like, we have no choice but to operate that way because I, that would be a terrifying world to live in where it's like, you just have no security in anything. And at, like turning my car wheel is like, you don't know that it's going to I'm going to go drive it. I'm gonna well, go, Hume oh says God, at bottom, turn. you don't. And I think that's the thing. That's why Hume inspires something like a, a clamor or like a revolution, like people are terrified because like it's very, very, very difficult to actually meet this objection. Right. And like the critique of pure reason, like one of the most difficult convoluted works in philosophy ever can be read as an attempt to meet this particular, this particular challenge. Because like you were saying, like it, I think what Hume wants to say is like, even if it's true that we have to take this for granted in order to function, that doesn't mean that we're right to do so. <laughs> and like therefore like maybe we shouldn't be surprised if things don't go as we expect or in like and especially and i mean like yeah like even in the the most obvious the most secure well like this is always going to cause that like yeah or okay, even, i think it... you drop a ball like right in front of you why has it got to fall like hume will say well you've all like because think about it for hume all of our ideas have to come from our impressions all of our thinking has to come from what we've seen or heard or sensed or smelled or whatever but like 
you know, up to now, anytime you've seen somebody drop a ball, say they're playing basketball and they're dribbling the ball. Anytime you've seen someone push the ball down, the ball goes down and bounces back up. So you've seen someone push the ball down. You've seen the ball, you've seen the ball drop. You've seen the ball fly back up. We can separate the event however way we want it. But like none of these events have to follow from the, like these are all different events. They're all distinct events. None of them have to happen once one of the other ones happens. None of them can really like be said to be the cause of the other is what Hume will say. So like maybe you, the next time you drop the ball, it just won't fall. Or maybe it'll go up. Maybe it'll explode. That's crazy. <laughs> See, the thing is, is that I can totally understand this. And like, honestly, like I said, for the past, I would actually say more like two years of my life, <laughs> I've been like in a constant state of, and my friends and I joke about it, like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. Absolutely. Like anything that happens that you would typically think, and I'm talking mostly about like in the dating world and just like life in general, like it's like anything that somebody does and you think, okay, this is what's going to happen next because they said this or they did that. And like common sense would tell you, okay, like this comes next. No, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) not. That does not come next. It doesn't matter what anybody does. Somebody could be so obvious about something and it turns out that like, Nope, that's not it. So like that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like just life and like how the world moves. But as far as like that kind of thing, like I feel like that's gravity. Like it's like science, the stuff like that yeah. is like it's scientific. So that I have a harder time. Like I'm like, Hume, you're freaking insane. But then on the other side of it, which I guess is kind of like the point, because it's like, how can we say that? It's true about life and like things that are not um, like scientific, but it's not true for things that are scientific. So I get what he's saying, but it's just like my brain can understand it more. Yeah. Like about life and not about the ball dropping. I mean, yeah. And like, to be fair, science just says like F Hume. I'm not, I can't worry about that. Like (laughs) we, we start worrying about that, the whole enterprise is over. And so that's like the real like scary aspect of Hume is like, yeah, like it's hard to, because if you accept, as he does, that in order for you to have an idea of something or to imagine something or to think about something, you first have to have experienced it or at least like been described it or something or somebody has to have experienced it somewhere and maybe they can tell you about it. If you think that that's true, if you think that we can't sort of come up with ideas on our own of our own power, then I think what he's saying is right that there is no way to ensure like you don't you never see necessity and i think the one last thing i want to say about this is like if you drop a ball like say i'm holding a ball and then i let go of it and it falls and you say that's gravity hume i think will say that gravity is just the name we give to that like thing that we have to posit by custom because until now like we've always seen it fall like that it's not like gravity is this thing that we see that causes it to fall we've just always seen it fall and we have to ask like well why does it always fall we posit we posit something we invent something we suppose that there's something that makes it fall even if we like never see that thing we've never encountered gravity for instance like we see it you know and i and i think another thing is if I drop a ball once and it falls, then let's say like you've never seen a ball drop before. Like you're not familiar with gravity. Um, so maybe like, yeah, maybe actually I'll use like a different example. If I flip a coin and it lands on heads, um, you're not going to think, well, next time it's got to land on heads. If I flip the coin again and it lands on heads, you're not going to think that. If I flip it a thousand times 
and it lands on heads every time. Now you might be pretty sure. You might be like, okay, it's probably going to land on heads. Like something is funny about this coin. Like you're going to start <laughs> thinking there's some other weird cause involved or something. Yeah. But at the same time, you might have that shadow of a doubt that's like, then again, maybe this is just crazy. Like maybe, maybe it will land on tails next time. And like, you know, it's just been like, maybe I do it a trillion times. He wants to say, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. Cause implies an unnecessary connection. If you say that, like say flipping the coin causes it to land on heads, then this means that any counterexample would make that not true. Any possibility of a counterexample would make that not true. And humans to say that like, listen, we've lived finite lives. We've had finite experiences. We've only experienced so much. Like we have no way to get to necessary connection. Like you'd have to see an infinite number. You'd have to see every possible coin flip to know in advance that none of them are going to be tails in order to know that the coin flip causes heads. And that that's sort of the situation we find ourselves in. Like we've only seen so many balls drop. We've only seen gravity work so many times. We've not seen this necessary connection. We've just seen many, many examples of the similar things happening over and over again. But that doesn't mean that we know that the next time it has to do that. Like you might still have a shadow of doubt. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> so Hume, I mean, yeah, he's he's a crazy guy. <laughs> He's a crazy guy. He is a crazy guy. He doesn't seem as crazy to me as Descartes, though, yet. Like, I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, I think Hume is, like, he he's less of a weirdo. I think he has, like, more scary ideas, but he's less of, like, a like a freak. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have a question. Why was Julian carrying Doomer? <laughs> I was dying laughing. I'm like, okay, so everybody, you can't see, but Brandon's fiance was carrying their dog which i mean doomer is a what a what is what is she a greyhound yeah she's a retired racing greyhound yeah so she's I don't a know big if girl you can see this image but it's a, <laughs> a holding a baby giraffe which looks just like doomer it did it was hilarious i was laughing she, I'm like what is happening she is like a little princess she like she doesn't like to go on walks. She's just not a normal dog. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, well, she, she doesn't raised. mind. She's yeah, tired. She, <laughs> she doesn't mind when she's on the walk, but she hates like the getting ready to go on the walk part. So like she will just stand up on the bed and go into the corner. And like, I don't know, perhaps we've indirectly trained her to do this, but you have to like pick her up. And then sometimes <laughs> we'll be in the middle of the walk and she'll just decide like, I'm not moving. Otherwise, she's a great walker. She never like pulls or pushes or anything like but she'll just decide, like, I'm not going. And, like, I don't want to, like, drag her, you know? But all you have to do, Amanda, is pick her up and put her down. And she, like, resets. Like, <laughs> she just, like, totally resets and goes back on the walk again. There's something something weird about this dog. I don't know. Wait, that is literally, I can't stop laughing. That is so funny. First of all, I just see Julian carrying her. <laughs> literally, like, that baby draft. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm picturing you guys trying to walk her and she just stops. Pick her up real quick, put her down, and she's ready to go. That is oh, yeah. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's I love her. She is my spirit animal. Yeah. <laughs> Next time I don't feel like doing anything, I'm just gonna stop and wait for somebody to pick me up, <laughs> put me down. I'll reset. We're good. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and she like yeah, I don't know. She just has this weird way of like going kind of like totally like limp or like still when you pick her up. She's just like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you should take her to a um one of those dog readers. They have those like psychics that supposedly read animals. 
<clears throat> or something and <laughs> figure out what the heck is wrong with her. <laughs> they won't find anything in there. <laughs> she, she does not have a psyche. <laughs> her head Your is dog hollow. is a blank slate. I can read nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, there's nothing going on in there. She's got yeah. four brain cells. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Okay, well, does that wrap it up for today? That does wrap it up for today. <laughs> cool. Who's coming next? Are we continuing with Hume or is there another one? Yeah, I think I want to do uh, one more Hume and then I need to figure out who I want to do afterwards. I think uh, for sake of like- Let's chronology... do one that's more modern. I want to do a more modern one so I can compare it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll think of someone. Uh, cool. Let's do Bergson. Okay. Is, is actually is the is the 1900s modern enough or do you want something even more recent yeah i was gonna say you know within the past hundred years <laughs> okay because <laughs> i feel like the time scale we're working with here is really big so yeah 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 so we'll do bergson next he has okay. some crazy things to say about time it's like mind love that okay so yeah okay. that's what we'll do okay well thanks for listening thank you